Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Kings. We'll be reading chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and then chapter 25, verses 1 through 21 and 27 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver. For the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, 
and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Meredith, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him at Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table for his allowance. A regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you this morning. Uh, You all look fantastic. Congratulations, we've made it to the end of the Book of Kings, so if you've been with us since the beginning, yep, uh, it's, it's been a long time in Old Testament narrative, so after this week we'll be back in the New Testament, we'll be uh, going through some parts of the Book of Luke and the Book of John for Advent, uh, but well done, thanks for coming and joining in the fun. Uh, we've seen the rise of the kingdom with Solomon's great empire, all the riches and all the splendor of this great kingdom. And now we're getting to the fall of the kingdom. They've gone from excellence, now they're going into exile. Their land is destroyed, their cities are destroyed, their temple is destroyed. They go from having everything to having nothing. And the experience that they're facing at this moment I think has a lot to teach us, a lot to show to us. But before we get there, Let me go ahead and open us in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you for the kindness that you show to us even uh, when we have been so unfaithful to you in so many ways, God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love for us. God, thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. God, thank you for your church. Lord, we just ask that you would uh, make your presence known among us, Lord. Help us to see your beauty and your splendor and your majesty, God. Uh, We are weak. We are in need of you, Lord. Would you please fill us with your spirit? Help us to know you and love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so back in the 1800s, uh, last half of the 1800s, early part of the 1900s, there was a man, his name was John Patton. I don't know if I have a picture, I guess I don't have a picture of him, but uh, I mean, just picture uh, a man from the 1800s, long beard, Duck Dynasty kind of looking guy. But John Patton was a Presbyterian missionary and pastor from Australia and he spent his life, his, his life's work was really to bring the gospel to an island chain that's known as Vanuatu now, so that's off the coast of Australia. Um, so this island chain, what we call Vanuatu today, uh, is now predominantly Christian. It's 91% Christian. 
And a lot of that is due to the foundation and the work of John Patton um, at the end of the 1800s. Uh, but when John Patton arrived to these islands, it was a much different place. It was a very dark place, a very violent place. Uh, warring tribes, just people constantly in conflict. Um, and all these tribes on Vanuatu, they, they didn't agree on much, but one thing they did agree on is that they didn't want John Patton there at all. They all hated him. They all were after his life. They all wanted to kill him. Um, so this was a very dark place, a very violent place, a lot of stress associated with the constant threat on your life and the constant threat on your, your family. Um, but to make matters worse, uh, while John Patton was in Vanuatu, his wife and his infant son both died of illness, a very dark Terrible situation, terrible time to find yourself in. Uh, and this is what he has to say about, about this experience. I felt her loss beyond all conception or description in that dark land. In a moment, altogether unexpectedly, she died on March 3rd. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy, whom we named after her father, Peter, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. You know, I cannot think of a circumstance, I cannot think of a situation or place so far away from the promises of God, so far away from the light of his presence, so far away from the goodness of life. I cannot think of an outcome that would have been further from the hopes and the expectations and the dreams that John Patton had for his life and for his family's life. And part of me can relate to John's experience. Uh, I've shared this with you before, but uh, my first wife, she died in a car accident. And this was just a couple days before her college graduation, so obviously we weren't expecting our lives to take this kind of turn. I wasn't expecting my life to take this kind of turn. We were uh, hopeful, we were expectant of great things, of, of better things. And I can remember many days and uh, many nights where I just hated my life, to be honest. I hated what my life had become. It was so, so far away from the hopes and the dreams and the expectations that I had for it. All I was left with was bitterness, loneliness, darkness. I think in some way, shape, or form, we can all relate to that kind of feeling. The feeling where you find yourself at this moment in life and it's so far away from what you had expected for it, right? Your reality is so different from the expectations that you had, the dreams that you had for life. 
all of God's promises seems so distant from you. His favor seems far away. Can you all remember a time like that in your life where your reality was so different from your expectations? I'm not asking you to share it, but I want you to think about it for a second and just put yourself back in that moment. In many ways, this feeling captures what the people of Judah would have been feeling when they were taken off into exile. So different from the expectations that they had. Remember, God had promised them a land forever. He promised to dwell with them in the temple. He promised them favor and life and goodness. An exile so far away from that. Of course, they deserved it, right? They had forsaken their God, yet... The promises of God must have seemed so far away to them. Church, in many ways, the exile of this ancient people is relevant for us today. Uh, Look with me at 1 Peter 1, verse 1. It's up on the screen. Here, Peter is writing to the church. He's actually writing a letter that's meant to be circulated around churches. He's writing to Christians. And what does he say? He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He is calling Christians, he's telling Christians that their experience is one of exile. He's calling them elect exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion is just a term that refers to the way that the people of Judah and Israel were taken out of their land and relocated after Babylon had conquered them. He's telling Christians that their experience in life is one of exile. Exile, in other words, is an experience that is uh, ubiquitous to the Christian life. Life is and will at many points feel like exile. It will feel like you've been removed from what is good or what is good has been removed from your life. It will feel like you've been estranged from the favor of God and his promises. Life will at many times feel like exile because we have not yet reached the fullness of God's promise. Yes, the king has come. He is here. He is ruling on his throne. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And his name is Jesus Christ. But his kingdom is still on its way. It's still being implemented. It's still being brought. So what do we have to rest on? What can we rest our hopes on until then? What we have to rest on is nothing less than the fact that we serve a God who remains faithful to us, even though we have been so unfaithful to him. We have a God who is good to us, despite our evil. We have a God who is committed to our well-being, despite our pursuit of self-destruction. Main idea this morning is simple. Main idea of the text 
that we're in. Despite exile, God is faithful. We have three points that arise from the text. God is faithful to judge with exile. He is faithful to hear his people in exile. And God is faithful to redeem through exile. So all three points, we can see something going on here. We can see that God has not left us, but he is at work. He is faithful to be at work in our lives, even when we might seem so distant from his promises, so distant from the goodness of life. You see, because God is faithful, we can sing with confidence the words of the well-known hymn, It is well with my soul. Or we know this, we've sang this many times before. When peace like a river attendeth my way, though sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Despite exile, God is faithful. All right, let's jump into point number one. In our reading, uh, we started off in chapter 24 in 2 Kings. And in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 24, uh, we see essentially one thing being highlighted. And that is that God has brought about the events that have led to the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. All right, we see that Jehoiakim rebelled. And then in verse 2, what does God do? Well, he sent armies to destroy the place, right? God is the one who sent these armies to destroy this land. Now, if that were not clear enough, in verse 3, the author says, surely this came about at the command of the Lord. What is clear here is that exile was a punishment. It was a consequence that God had brought about for the unfaithfulness of his people. They had forsaken the Lord, and God had warned them time and time again that if you forsake me, this will happen. So here God is bringing about that judgment. Exile was a consequence that God had brought about. And here's why this is so significant. This is significant because Israel and Judah did not go into exile because the Lord was weaker than the Babylonian gods. They didn't go into exile because they lacked political skill or military power or resources or good leadership. Like those are all secondary causes. Those are all secondary reasons for the exile. The reason they their land was destroyed, the reason they went off into captivity is because they had forsaken their God. Exile was a crystal clear message that they were reaping the consequences of their own actions. In other words, with the exile, God was saying, no more excuses. No more excuses. I've warned you time and time again that this would happen. I've shown you mercy and favor time and time again, despite your unfaithfulness, but because you have forsaken me, 
The time of judgment has come. No more excuses. There's no more excuses left. So if you're here this morning and you have not yet turned to the Lord in faith, you've not yet submitted your life to him, first of all, understand that, you know, we're really happy to have you here with us. We, we love the fact that you uh, are here with us and we want you to feel welcome here. But please understand this. God has made it clear in his word that the time for excuses is over. That time has come to an end. God would have us number our days. God would have us understand the brevity and the fragility of life. All of us, myself included, we all need to stop making excuses for our sins. Because the real reason, the primary reason why there is unrest in our souls, the primary reason why we feel like we've been exiled from what is good in life, the real reason that we cannot find any satisfaction is because of our own unfaithfulness to God. So church, what are your excuses? What are the things that you blame for your own unfaithfulness? We have estranged ourselves from the Lord, and our souls will find no rest until they find their rest in him. We face the experience of exile because in so many ways and at so many times we have forsaken the Lord. But God is faithful Despite exile, God is faithful. God not only uses exile to wake his people up, to call them back to himself, but he even uses exile to draw his people closer to himself, to show his people that even in exile, even in the darkest moments, he is still listening and attentive. Which brings me to our second point this morning. The people of Judah, they've suffered the destruction of their cities. Their capital city, Jerusalem, was destroyed. And even their temple, the dwelling place of God, the place where God promised he would meet with them, the place that showed all the nations around them that God favored them, this special place had been destroyed. Chapter 25, verse 9, the temple was burned. All the treasures were taken, you know, that... What might have seemed like a tedious reading, reading about all of the pans and dishes and all the stuff from the temple, all of it, all the treasures were taken away. This epitomized God's judgment and wrath. It epitomized the, the fact that he was displeased with them. He would no longer dwell with them. He would no longer dwell with them in the temple. But he would be present in a different way. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. So 1 Kings chapter 8, we'll read verses 46 through 51. Here, 
we're at the height of the kingdom. Solomon is king. And he's acting as a mediator on behalf of the people. He's praying on behalf of the people for God's favor in their lives. He's acting as a mediator. And what does he pray? In verse 46, Lord, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. So what is he describing here? He's describing exile. Yet if they turn in their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for my name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. See, God anticipated, you could think of it this way, God anticipated the rebellion and unfaithfulness of his people. All right, he knew that they were prone to leave him and forsake him and go and pursue other things, other worldly things. Yet, what we see in Solomon's prayer is that God's ears are still open. So despite the awful situations that we may get ourselves in, know that God's ears are still open to your prayer and your plea. In this distant land, Babylon, where they've been taken prisoner, with their cities destroyed, with their homeland flattened, the people of Judah can have this hope that God is still attentive to them. He's still listening to them. He is still present to hear them, their prayer and their plea. We've looked at this text before, but I think it just puts it so well. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16 says, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, right? He's describing the exile. Yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. The imagery that we see in the book of Ezekiel is that God sent his people into exile. He cast them out of the land because they deserved it. But what does he do? He goes with them. He sent them off into the land. He sent them off into this judgment, but he goes with them into that judgment, into that consequence. So maybe you're here this morning and you feel estranged from God. You feel like you can't find rest for your soul. Maybe you feel exiled from what 
is good in life, from the good that life has to offer. And maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're a believer and you feel this way. You feel like you're so far away from the hopes and the dreams and the expectations that you had for your life. Well, when we read the book of Kings in context, we can see that we should take heart because God not only uses exile to confront people's unfaithfulness, but he uses exile to draw near to those who have been faithful to him. God is present in your darkest valleys, in your most desperate moments. It may be hard to see that, but know that he is. He is attentive to your plea and to your prayer. I imagine that we all know the prophet Daniel from the Bible, wrote the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel's about him, right? Daniel and the lion's den, we've all gone through that story and. Sunday school? Well, Daniel was taken off into exile during this time that we're talking about. Right here in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. This is when the prophet Daniel was taken away. He was taken as a prisoner to Babylon. Now, was Daniel a faithful person? Was he faithful to God? Yeah, he wasn't perfect, but he was faithful to the Lord. But did Daniel suffer in exile? Yes, he did. But here's the thing about that. Daniel was able to see God work. He was able to know God in a different way. He was able to know God in a clearer way because he saw him at work while he was in exile in Babylon. Just think about Daniel being in the lion's den. Right, he's in this pit full of lions all night. Right? It seems like a terrible way to die, being eaten alive by lions. Right? There's, there, like, this is a hopeless situation. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Yet how was Daniel able to see God at work? God sent an angel to protect him, to shut the mouths of these lions, kept him safe. On the other side of that trial, Daniel knew God in a different way. He knew God in a clearer way, in a deeper way. He saw God show up for him when he needed him the most. John Patton has a similar thing to say. Here, uh, these words come from a time when he was uh, running away from people who were trying to kill him. So he's hiding up in a tree. And this is how he recounts that experience. He says, Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone yet not alone, if it be to glorify my God. I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, 
in the very embrace of death itself. Have you a friend that will not fail you then? Jesus was present in John Patton's suffering, and I can attest to the same reality. I can look back on the worst, most painful trial in my life, and I can see that God brought me into a clearer, deeper relationship with him, despite the pain and the sorrow that I had gone through. I was able to see God show up for me when I desperately needed him, when I needed him the most. Brothers and sisters, God is present in the valley of the shadow of death. No matter how dark or desperate your situation may seem, God is there. He is attentive to your prayer and to your plea. Though sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Last point. God is faithful to redeem through exile. So the book of Kings, 2 Kings, ends on a rather interesting note. We see in chapter 25, verse 27, it says, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, so 37th year in exile, it's a longish time. In the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. So we have Jehoiachin. This is Josiah's grandson. So we talked about King Josiah last week. So we have Josiah's grandson, Jehoiachin, who's, who's not a good king. He's taken off into captivity. He's living in exile as a prisoner. But then he is shown grace by the king of Babylon, evil Merodach. Or with a name like that, he should really be a Bond villain. Right, there's, there's no real subtlety in his name. Like They're not trying to conceal the fact that they're the bad guys in the story. The text says that evil Merodach graciously freed Jehoiachin. Now that's interesting. What do we make of it? Is this a note of hope? Is this a glimmer of hope? If it is, it's still pretty dismal. This situation is so far away from uh, the promise that God had given to the line of David, right? God promised David that his descendant would sit on the throne forever, that his kingdom would be established forever. This seems like way far away from that promise. So is this a hopeful situation? What's going on here? Well, a lot of commentators, a lot of Bible teachers, you know, you look in the ESV study Bible, it'll say that this is like a faint bit of hope, right? that God is not done with the line of David. But I think it's actually more than a, a faint glimmer of hope. I think there's more going on here. And this is why. This phrase graciously freed, 
right? Evil Merodach graciously freed Jehoiachin. In Hebrew, it is literally lifted up the head of Jehoiachin. Nothing, you know, really fancy going on here. You can see it as a footnote in your Bible. Footnote number two on page 333 if you're in the same kind of Bible as me. But literally in Hebrew, uh, evil Merodach lifted up the head of Jehoiachin. Now, there is only one other place in the Old Testament where this phrase is used verbatim like this. There is only one other place in the Old Testament where this phrase is used in reference to a pagan king or a pagan emperor freeing someone from prison. Right, the two places in the Old Testament that use this phrase are right here at the end of Kings and then in Genesis chapter 40, verse 13, during the Joseph narrative. You remember Joseph was in prison and Joseph, right, he interprets someone's dream and he says these same words to that servant of Pharaoh. See, what's happening here is this phrase is referring back to this narrative, back to this episode in the Old Testament when Joseph was in prison in Egypt. So a couple parallels going on here. We have the same exact vocabulary, right? Same four words in Hebrew used in the same order, used in both places. We have the same kinds of characters, right? We have a pagan emperor, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, freeing someone from prison. A couple other parallels. Uh, we have a note here in the book of Kings that Jehoiachin was given new garments. He took off his prison garments. Right? In Genesis, in the Joseph story, the author makes it a point to tell us that, that Joseph was given new clothes after his time in prison. Jehoiachin, he was given a seat at the table above all the other kings in the land. When Joseph was released from prison, he was made second in command only to Pharaoh. He was raised above all the other rulers in the land of Egypt. You see, the author of Kings wants us to connect God's word or God's work during Joseph's life to the work that he is doing in the exile. You see, Joseph was experiencing a personal sort of exile, right? He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was taken as prisoner into a foreign land. A dark place with no hope must have been so far away from the expectations that he had for life. The author of the book of Kings is connecting Joseph's exile to the exile that they were now experiencing in the land of Babylon. All right, he's referring back to this narrative in Genesis. And here's why this is such good news. God used Joseph's exile to save many lives. God used Joseph's time in Egypt to save the whole family 
of Israel. As Joseph looks back on his incredibly painful experience, he sees God's sovereign hand at work, and he has this to say. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The author of Kings is foreshadowing this same kind of hope, that God will take what man has meant for evil and he will use it for his saving purposes. God will take the evil of exile and use it to bring about salvation. Maybe like, you know, they, they couldn't see how this was going to happen, but they could rest on the fact that the same God that did that during Joseph's life is the same God that they served in their exile. God is faithful to redeem through exile. This time, the difference is he's going to do it through the line of David. In other words, the book of Kings is telling us that God is still faithful to use the line of David to accomplish his saving purposes. What man meant for evil, God will use for good. God's saving purposes were foreshadowed in the exile of Jehoiachin, who was a king in the line of David. God's saving purposes were accomplished in the exile of Jesus, the true king of David. Jehoiachin deserved to be taken captive. He deserved to go off into exile. Right? He deserved to be cast away from God's presence and God's promise. He did not deserve favor in this dark land, in this dark place. Jesus, on the other hand, did not deserve to be exiled. He did not deserve to be cast away from the, the Father's presence. He did not deserve to be exiled from the land of the living. He did not deserve death. Right? Death is the ultimate kind of exile. It is the furthest place you can be from God's promise of life. Yet he suffered estrangement from the Father. He suffered exile from the land of the living. You see, Jesus rescued us from our exile by going into exile himself. He took what we deserved. He saved us from exile by suffering exile in our place. God is faithful despite exile. God is faithful to redeem through exile. So we can say with confidence, Though Satan should buffet, though sorrows may come, let this blessed assurance control that Jesus has looked on my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you for 
just the incredible mercy and the favor that you have shown to us. Despite our self-destructive tendencies, despite our wandering hearts, despite all the unfaithfulness that we've shown to you, God, thank you for still being committed to us. Thank you for your unending faithfulness towards us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would all take refuge in his work, in his identity. God, please help us to know your presence as we walk through the valleys of the shadow of death. We love you, Lord. We look to you. We place our trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.